as usual, as always. As always. Um, there's another person here that would be like me in that regard, enjoying music, because neither one of us play or sing and uh, or do any of those kinds of things without a lot of aid and help, do we, Jim? <laughs> He's sitting right there. Glad to have Jim back here visiting with us with his family and Andy's mom visiting with us this morning and grateful for that. And um, of course, Andy's back there on his throne running the controls back there. I have to be pretty careful what I say because we were practicing the other day and he said, let me show you what I can do. <laughs> and he did. And it didn't sound so good when it came out here. So I do have a little bit of self-restraint here. But I do like to pick on him a little bit here and there. I had the opportunity to go by and see Ms. Haddock Friday night and have a word of prayer with her. And she seemed to be in very good spirits. And just uh, her condition is, in some respects, like Janet's dad was, has a lot of swelling in her feet. And they were trying to get the fluid off of that, of her feet, and get that back to normal and get her blood pressure back to normal, too. So when you pray for her, just pray in, in that respect that... Um, the Lord would take care of that for her. Of course, I had a good talk, too. She gave me a lot of history of her life and where all she had been and, and uh, so on and, and her how she met her husband and, and uh, things like that. So that was a good time that we had there. Um, I was looking at that hymn we were singing, To God Be the Glory, and that, that phrase there, The vilest offender who truly believes... That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Isn't that amazing? Just that quick, just that simple is the gospel. If I could change it, I would, though. You know, the Bible does not place any modifiers or any adjectives before the word believe. And there is no such thing as truly believing. You either believe or you don't believe. You either believe the gospel, you believe this is God's word, or you don't believe it. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. There is no degree of believing. So there is no such thing as truly believe. If I could change it, I'd just say the vilest offender who freely believes. Because it's that simple. It's so easy to freely believe it. The gospel invitation is for each one of us to come to Christ and accept Him freely without any doubt, without any question. You know, I just don't like that word because the whole idea of saying truly believes allows doubt to come in. Because then you can ask yourself, well, did I truly believe or didn't I? And you'll never find anything like that in all of Scripture regarding the word believe as to whether there's a degree or doubt or possibility of belief. It's just that you, you either believe it or you don't. Well, I thought I'd throw that in. That wasn't a part of the... That's not a part of the message at all. All right, this morning. I knew there was something else. Oh, yeah, Andy wanted me to tell you, too, just in case um, anybody got a CD or had a CD last week and it sounded a little bit scratchy, he said he was just... Testing the system and trying to work things out. He thinks he's got it all cleared up and it ought to be even better this time. So I don't know. I couldn't. <laughs> I don't know. These are the ears of mine wouldn't have picked that up. I thought, I thought it was pretty good last week myself. 
and everybody here seemed to think the new sound system's working well, and and I I can hear myself, so that's pretty good too. So we'll work on it like that, and and if you in a corner somewhere where you think you can't hear well, well we can we'll work on it, we'll adjust it. Okay, this morning. I want to talk uh, for a few minutes here on the subject of the church. We um, spoke to that some last week, and actually in the book of Ephesians, I've had uh, a few messages uh, out of that book that I honestly didn't plan on staying there or parking there in any sense of the word, but the Lord kept me there for a while. And now here we are, last week's message dealt with the church and the unity of the church and how it's connected together and fitted together, and it's a, a, a unit, just like the, the body is a unit, and all connected together, that each member that makes up the body has a part and is associated with that through the connecting tissues, as it were. But he also used not just biological metaphor to explain the church, but also that of architecture, that it's like a building, and uh, it, it is something that has to be built up and fitly framed together and so on. Well, I want to delve into that whole topic a little more and maybe even over the next two or three or four weeks. I don't know where the Lord will uh, end that or stop it or, or whatever, what that will lead to for sure. But I want to talk about the church and the nature of the church. Just what is the church? So we'll look at some of those things this morning, and this will just be a beginning. This will just be a launching, so we'll definitely have uh, some follow-up on this. Now, the church ought to be important to us for several reasons, and um, some of these are delineated in Scripture quite clearly. Let's look at a passage that we actually looked at last week, Acts chapter 20. And you'll be ready. This, again, will be one of those days. (laughs) We're going to look at several passages. Acts chapter 20. Of course, when you're discussing a topic like this by very nature, then you have to go all over the Bible to pull all these things together and see what the Scripture says about it. So we're going to begin with Acts chapter 20 here in verse 28, where he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And so the first thing we just note here is that this is something that cost the Lord Jesus Christ his very life. It was purchased through death, through the shedding of his blood. And so that makes it a very valuable and important topic to study, to find out what it is that he purchased. What was it that that was so uh, of import and so valuable to him that he was willing to lay down his life and suffer as he did and shed his own blood that he might purchase this thing we call the church. Then we'll look over at um, Matthew chapter 16. And when you get there, you'll want to keep your finger there because we're going to come back to this one in just just a minute or so. Or a couple of minutes, but in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, a well-known verse there regarding the church, uh, the first time it's mentioned in the Gospels, and one of only two times it's mentioned in the Gospels. And he says there in verse 18, regarding Peter's confession of him as being the Christ, 
the Messiah of God, he says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here we find that this is something that Christ is building. Not only did he die to purchase it, now he says, I will build it. Now he says here in this passage, I will build, meaning it was yet future at the time in which he spoke this. Today, we would say he is building his church because this is something that is ongoing at the present time, something that is being carried out by the Lord as we speak. He is building his church. And then if we would turn over to um, the book of Ephesians, where we've spent uh, a few Sundays past, and we'll go to Ephesians chapter 5, and there, regarding the church, he makes a comparison of that with husbands and wives and the relationship of marriage. And he tells us there that in verse 25, that's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives even as... So we find here that he's making a comparison and he's directing us as husbands to look to what Christ did for the church. And he says, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So we ought to be able to study the church simply because Christ himself loves it. He is in love with the church. And also... Then in verse 29, look at verse 29, the same chapter, it says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord, the church. And so here we find it's of importance to the Lord in the sense that he nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. He holds it very dear to himself. And, of course, in this context, the words of instruction, again, are to husbands to love their wives in the same manner in which he nourishes the church, in the same manner in which he cherishes the church, we are to so do so for our, our wives, nourish and cherish them. And so it ought to be of importance to us, if for no other reasons than these, at least because he loves it, he nourishes it, and he cherishes it. But look also at verse 27. In verse 27, it tells us, uh, well, in, in, in uh, verse 25, when he talks about loving our wives and how Christ loved the church and he gave himself for the church, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Why? That he might present it to himself. To present the church to himself. As a bride, the glorious church or the church of glory, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so Christ's purpose in giving himself for the church here, it says, is to present it to himself, a glorious church. Or actually, it's the article, the, it's the glorious church. And so it's going to be, the church will be his bride. 
And so these, for few reasons, ought to be sufficient enough for us to want to take an interest in the whole idea of church and what does it mean. How did we come to have it to begin with? Well, the first thing we want to look at really is just simply what does the word church mean? Where where does it come from? It's not necessarily a direct translation here, the word church. The word church itself comes from... I forget now what the original word was. Uh, I know it relates back to German and, and, and uh, to Scottish. It comes from the word kirk, K-I-R-K. A Scottish kirk is a Scottish church. And so it evolved into English from that word. The Greek word we get it from is ekklesia. Ekklesia in its barest minimal form simply means to call out. The word ek, meaning out, and the word kaleo, meaning to call. Now, that is not the primary emphasis, though, when we study this word. And hopefully, as we progress through that today, you'll see that that is not the main thought here uh, of what he's referring to. Because even before this word ever was used in the New Testament, in classical Greek or in secular Greek, it was used to refer to the assembling together of people. It had to do with the assembly. And you've heard it translated that way or referred to that way, I'm sure, on more than one occasion, that the primary meaning of the word church is an assembly. And oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, it means a called-out assembly, as if it meant a group called out from another group. And it doesn't necessarily mean that. So that's what we want to look at just for a few minutes. So we put forth plainly and clearly the development of how this word was used in the Bible. So this word just simply meant to call or to summon people from their homes. Now you might remember that, of course, in studying Greek, that... um, the whole principle of democracy evolved or came from the idea of the the Greek uh, polis, the city, or the city-state. So over a period of time, they became, and I'm just jumping over a whole lot of development here, but over time they became uh, what we would call a democracy. That is, each city-state, whether it was a a little village of three or four hundred or a thousand or or if it was 15,000, or if it was a large city like the city of Athens, or uh, uh, Corinth that may have been maybe uh, 100,000 or 200,000. It could have been a very large city. It simply meant that when these cities were carrying out the business of government, the politics, in other words, of the city, the polis, that this, the, the, the town crier or the herald, would call out or summons the citizens of the city to come and carry out their responsibilities as citizens. So then they would come and assemble together. They would meet for the purpose of carrying out the business of the city, whatever they were summoned for, whatever they were called to do. So if you understand that then, understand that when those people were called out or summoned to you know, from the populace of the city, they were not inherent. It was not inherent in the meaning of the word that they were calling them out to separate themselves from the rest of the city 
or the rest of the citizens of the city. He wasn't doing that. He was simply giving a summons to these people, calling upon them to come, fulfill your responsibility as as a citizen of this state to carry out the public business of our city, whatever city it might be. Or it could have been, in some cases, um, maybe, and again, this gets, I don't want to go so far into this that it becomes boring or confusing, but... Some of the city-states, you know, were, were not purely a democracy. You know, even prior to this time, they might have been what we would call an oligarchy, a rule of the few. So there might have just been a few, and they had political power, or it might have been because of their military might and power. They had control of a larger area than just the physical geographical area of the state itself. So I say all of that to simply say the word ecclesia refers to the assembly of the people. It's the people gathered together. And that was all that it meant. So they were called from their homes to carry out the function and the purposes, the business of the state. Now I'm going to read a couple things to you from, um, well, one here from a a Greek lexicon, Liddell and Scott's lexicon. And, And they define ecclesia this way. They said it's an assembly of the citizens summoned by the crier the legislative assembly. Just that simple. But the point being is, is that they were not separating themselves. When we take that word call and then call out, we're not talking about separating yourselves from another group of people the way we often infer the church to be. That it's called out with the idea of separation in mind. Now, that does happen. I'm just saying it's not in this word. Then also... Another thought, a guy named John Brodus, he was a Baptist scholar, and this is a, a little bit lengthy quote, but I want you to hear this. He says here, the word uh, ecclesia refers primarily to the assembly of citizens in a self-governed state, being derived from the word ekaleo, to call out. That is, to call out from their homes or places of business, to summon as we speak of calling out the militia. The popular notion that it meant to call out in the sense of separation from others, he says, is a mistake. So that's not the point. Now you say, well, wait, they called them out of their homes. Well, the call, you see, went out to every citizen of the city-state. It was to everyone who were members. Now, of course, they could not all respond. Some did not qualify. There would be people there who would be foreigners who would not qualify. Women did not qualify in that day and age. It was only the men and the men who were citizens of the city-state. So, yes, they were called forth, but they were not separating themselves from the rest of the citizenry of the city or the state. Okay, so now we would just summarize it this way. The summons then was not, uh, was not to be to a selected few. It was to all, but it was, and it was to every man that was a member or a citizen to come and shoulder or bear his responsibility as a member, as a citizen of the state. And so, therefore, they, they were to go ahead and, and doing so then to carry out and conduct the business of the state. Now, that needs to be kept in mind when we talk about the church, but there's more to it than that. 
And because, as is normal with words, they change in meaning over, the t- over time. We're looking right now at the um, pure uh, sense of the meaning of the word, and that only. But, of course, as is accustomed with words and time, even in our own language, and even, even at times in a generation or so, a word can change in meaning or it can add another nuance to it of meaning. Uh, that, well, you know, I remember when we were, when I was a teenager or late teens, early 20s, when the word cool became very popular. Well, three or four hundred years ago, if you'd have walked up and, and looked at this bowl or something, the guy said, that's cool, they wouldn't have known from Adam's house cat, as my dad would used to say, what in the world that meant. To be cool. But in the 50s and 60s, that word took on another connotation. It took on another sense of meaning. And so as they updated dictionaries, they have to add, you know, number one, two, three, four, five, or whatever. They have to add another nuance or sense of meaning to that word. And, of course, we only know then the meaning by the context in which it is used. That's why when you go to a dictionary, you may look at one word in a dictionary, and there just may be a brief sentence there telling you what that word means. But sometimes you'll come to a word that might have, you know, listed one, two, three, four, five different possibilities. Some eight or nine or ten. Some have 20 or 30 different possibilities of meaning. And how do you know which one of those meanings is being spoken of? Even if it's the word see or come or some such simple word like that or the word cool. Well, we have to look at the context in which it is used. But also, you can look at the the history, the date and the time in which that word was used. What was going on then? What was happening culturally and politically and economically and all kinds of other things to determine what could this word possibly have meant when this person spoke that word? Now, you know, quite frankly, I'm glad that when you and I speak to each other today, About 99.99% of the time, we have no trouble understanding each other because of various things like being up to date, knowing what's going on. We've got television. We have magazines and newspapers. And, you know, if you're really, you know, with it, most of us know what's happening. But if you talk to somebody who's maybe 18 or 19, they might throw something out there and you have no clue, you know, what they're talking about. Because you don't know the culture, you know, in the teens or the tweens or whatever. But then, of course, they look at us and they hear some of us older folks talking. And uh, they haven't a clue sometimes what we're talking about. Because we're using words from 30 or 40 or 50 years ago that are not a part of their generation. So the whole point and idea in communication is knowing how a word is used, when it was being used, and the changes that took place with the usage of that word over time. So when we look at the word ecclesia, this meaning I have just given you was the very foundational basic meaning. This was prior to the New Testament era, prior to this word ever being used with any connotation or idea of church. So my point here is, is for us to get it in our minds, to understand to think clearly that this has nothing necessarily to do with church. 
that's not inherent, that is to say, in the meaning of the word. Now, having said all of that, with ecclesia, meaning a gathering or an assembly of people, later then, it began to develop in other ways. Now, we said that, well, in actuality, let's go to Acts chapter 19 then. Acts chapter 19. And having said that, and having said that it referred primarily to an assemblage of people for the purpose of conducting the affairs of the, of the city-state and the Greek culture, over time, of course, you had the Greeks losing their dominance and politically the Romans coming into uh, dominance. And, and in control, militarily, and politically of much of the known world of that, of that day. And so with that, you had change in the meaning of the word, or a change in the application. I wouldn't say a change in the meaning, just an additional usage of the word. So let's look at in Acts chapter 19 and verse, um, verse 32. Now, of course, Paul here is, is in Ephesus, and... Um, due to his uh, witness and conflict and giving out the gospel there, a great uproar had occurred. And in verse 32, it says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And, of course, I like this verse for another reason, is because when it says come together, that's the idea behind the, uh, this word assembly. They were come together. In other words, the crowd of people just simply came out and met or assembled together. Now, in moving over to um, verse 41, you see there it says, And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. That is to say, this crowd... And, of course, if you remember the story well, it was a riotous crowd. And, quite frankly, it was an illegal crowd. They had assembled together in violation of the laws regarding the order of, of the city-state, as it were. And so the, uh, um, well, if you look at um, verse 37, 38, 39, and so on, it says there, Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. This is the, the town clerk speaking here. It's like the mayor. And he's saying in verse 37, You have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are uh, with him have a matter against any man, the law is open and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be, be determined in a lawful assembly. That is to say, there was a prescribed manner in which they were to come together to take care of affairs such as this. And these craftsmen, which had an argument with uh, Paul because they were taking away from their livelihood, if they wanted to deal with that, there was a lawful and legal way to do it. And so there was this assembly to do this with, this ecclesia. But the ecclesia that was going on was an unlawful one. And he calls it a, a, a riotous one. 
And so he disperses them and said, look, you don't want to get in trouble? Go back to your homes and let's do this thing the right way, the lawful way, the legal way. Now, um, look, let's look for a moment back to the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 26, or the 26th Psalm. You remember that the Old Testament scriptures, uh, just a couple of hundred years or so before uh, the time of Christ, were translated into the Greek language as well. It was the predominant language of the known world at that time. And we call that the Septuagint. And it becomes important oftentimes to look at the Septuagint to see how it uses such words so that we can gain a greater understanding on the New Testament side as to what they're referring to. Well, again, in Psalm 26, in uh, verse 5, notice what it says there. I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Here in this passage is translated congregation in English, but in the Septuagint it was the word ecclesia. In other words... David's saying here, I will, um, I will uh, hate or have no, nothing to do with the assembly of those who do evil. Just to give us another idea of how this word is applied, how it, how it is used, the kinds of people it's speaking of. Then also, back in, uh, well, Psalm 22, just a couple, of, uh, a couple of psalms back, Psalm 22 and verse 22. Here it's not used of evildoers, but it's used on the positive side. Uh, he says in, in uh, verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. So again, just to see that there is nothing inherent in the use of this word to say it belongs to the church. Now, we will see later on that ultimately and eventually it did take on a technical usage or we might say a theological usage that was applied strictly to the church. And hopefully we'll see some of that even yet this morning uh, if I can finish it all in time. Now, back to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. If you kept your finger there, maybe you'll be able to jump right to it. Matthew. Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. Having said these things, having... Oh, by the way, I should have mentioned... Well, let's do, before we do that, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hold your finger here now, because we're going to come back. Deuteronomy chapter 9. I want us to look at something else here before we do that. And verse 10. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 10. Now here it says, And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone. Now of course, we're in Deuteronomy. You know, the old congregation that came out of Egypt that was over the age of 20, they've all died off. Now they're, they've got the young congregation now. Those that were 20 and under are now at the border of the land of Canaan. They're just getting ready to enter in. And so now um, Moses is rehearsing the history of the nation to these people. 
And so that's what he's saying here. And the Lord delivered unto me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. So all he's saying here, and all I want to point out here is that this group of people that was assembled at the base of Mount Sinai at the time that they were uh, making this covenant with the God of Israel to be their God and to be their leader, to be their king, he calls them an ecclesia, an assembly. In other words, they just were gathered together there at the base of Mount Sinai to meet before God and establish this covenant. Now, over in uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, I told you we were going to have to run all over the Bible this morning. Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. And we find the same word then on the New Testament side given, referring to the same, the same group of people. In verse, um, verse 37 it says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you out of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, or he that was in the ecclesia in the wilderness. So again, they were simply referred to as an assembly. An assembly that was called out. They were brought out of Egypt, the entire assembly with a purpose in mind. Now, having said that, Matthew 16. Put your finger there, or take, take your finger and turn it over there to Matthew 16, and let's look at that verse now one more time. And there he says, I will build my ecclesia. Now, having said that, do you understand the modifier here, the word my? He tells us specifically about this ecclesia, that it is my ecclesia as opposed to any other and all other ecclesias that were going on at that time. At this period of time in history, in the city of Jerusalem, in Galilee, or wherever it might be, there were many other ecclesias going on. There were assemblies of people meeting together or gathered together for the purpose of carrying out some other function or business. And so to distinguish that from all others, Jesus tells his disciples, and Peter specifically here, he says, upon your confession, Peter, that I am Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah of God, the one promised who would bring deliverance to Israel. Upon that confession, Peter, I will build my ecclesia. I'm going to build my assembly. Now, if you're thinking even just a little bit, you will know that he couldn't be speaking here necessarily of a physical assemblage. Necessarily. Number one, he's speaking of the future. He says, I will build my assembly, my ecclesia. But as, the, as Paul and others began to spread the gospel around the world and there became many other ecclesias, Jesus didn't say, I will build my ecclesias, plural. He said, ecclesia, 
my assembly. So we know then that there's something other to uh, uh, another added dimension to this whole idea of ecclesia than just the physical gathering together of a group of people. There was some other nature. And you remember at the beginning of this message, I said we would talk about the nature of the church. Well, this is just one step in the development of our understanding of what the nature of the church is. That it is more than just the physical gathering together of you and I here this morning. There's another dimension to this. Otherwise, how would Jesus be building his church in Chattanooga at the corner of Scruggs Road and Ringgold Road and then be doing so you know, out in Los Angeles or over in Beijing, China or wherever it might be? So somewhere along the line, in some facet, some dimension, there is something more to this ecclesia than just what he's revealing to us here. Uh, or, or what we have had revealed to us up to this point. Um, it's the kind of assembly that he's speaking of. So it's not necessarily physical. Another thing is, he says here, the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. Well, we already know that Hades is the unseen world. It's, it's, it's the world of the dead. That is the physically dead. Those departed. But it also included uh, other beings of God's creation. And what he's telling us is here is that as a part of his ecclesia, which has this other dimension to it beyond the physical, he says that part of the world, Hades, will not prevail against this. It's not going to stop it. It is not going to prevent it from, from being built. Because that's the very word he used. He says, I will build my ecclesia. As a matter of fact, that was the next point I wanted to make. Why is it, why is it that this, this Hades, this unseen world, will not be able to prevail against his ecclesia? Because it has another dimension to it. And that tells us right there, enables us to see that it's a spiritual assembly. Is a spiritual Assembly of believers. And so as we look at that word again, ek, out, to call, it is a summons to come forth, to carry out your responsibility before God. Just like in the city, Greek city-state, the citizens of that city-state were called forth to carry out or shoulder or bear their responsibilities as the citizens of the city-state. Well, likewise, God has called us forth. He has summoned us. As that's a part of our calling as a Christian. It's one of those dimensions uh, that the New Testament speaks of as our calling, as a part of Christ's assembly, as a part of his ecclesia. And so then we're called forth to bear or shoulder our responsibilities in obedience to his gospel and to carry it out. Now, if let's just look back at uh, I think we looked at this last week, First Peter, or, yeah, First Peter chapter two, and I think maybe looking at it again will give us just another idea of what is involved in this ecclesia and the idea of it being a a spiritual body, a spiritual assembly. 
And he tells us, beginning in 1 Peter 2, talking about growing as newborn babes. And he says in verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone. Well, that, that tells us something there, too. A stone that's alive. It has life. As, but it's a simile. As a living stone. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now, of course, he's talking about the Messiah. But then he says in verse 5, You also as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house. Just as there is a dimension beyond the physical in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. And by the word, way, the, the word uh, also, one of the original uh, sources of this word actually meant, uh, the, of the word church means the Lord's house. So it can refer specifically to the Lord's house. Now, over time, of course, we have corrupted it and applied it to the building here, the Lord's house. But I think the original intent was that it means just exactly what Peter's speaking about here, as that this is the Lord's house, this assembly of God's people united together in purpose, for worship, and for service, to carry out the will of God. And so he says, you're a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now notice something regarding this whole thing then, this spiritual house. He says, wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief corner stone. So to this spiritual house was laid a cornerstone, a spiritual cornerstone, which was Jesus Christ. Chosen, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. The King James says just means what it means. Confounded, confused, ashamed, dishonored. So the one who believes on him as the chief cornerstone for this assembly which he is building, which he calls my ecclesia, he said that one, that person, will never be dishonored. He'll never be shamed. Or, if you want to just put it literally, downshamed. But in verse 7 he says, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, to that person who refuses to believe, it becomes nothing but confusion, a confounding, and ultimately it will result in dishonor.
just turn back one one chapter in First Peter. In chapter one, he's speaking about um, trials. He talks about the inheritance and and the incorruptible. Uh, uh, inheritance that is that is laid away, reserved in heaven for you, he says in verse four, and um, he also says in verse five that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, in view of that, he says, then wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That in verse seven. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, to the one who does have faith, to the one who does believe, there will be honor. But he says to the one who doesn't believe, nothing but confusion and dishonor. And it all is directly having to do with this spiritual house. So the point, well, let's, one other thing before I, I'm going to run out of time if I don't hurry. Chapter Hebrews, chapter 3. And let's look at um, verse 2. Well, I guess you have to read verse 1 to put the whole thing together. Wherefore, he says in verse 1, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. All right, there we are. We're talking about the calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house hath more honor than the house. Do you see the whole idea of honor is connected with the building of the house? And he's talking about the idea of faithfulness. And so then in verse 4, he says, For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But, but Christ, and you want to read into it here at this point, but Christ was faithful. In other words, the, the subject here is the faithfulness of Moses as opposed to or contrasted with the faithfulness of Christ. So it's understood here. But Christ was faithful as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now what's the point here? What's the idea? In the building of Christ's ecclesia. And referring to this as being a house built of living stones, of believers. He brings out in Second Peter and here the whole idea of our participation in the house has to do with our 
obedience. It has to do with our faithfulness in response to that. And he's not talking about our initial faith. He's not talking about when we became a member of the house, or that is when we became a, a, uh, a member of Christ and his body. But he's talking about the issues following that of obedience and whether we will be partakers of that or not. You remember in, in, he called them partakers of or sharers in the heavenly calling. Well, with that whole idea in mind, just remember then, the heavenly calling, partakers of that. When you bring verse 6 to a conclusion, you keep the thought and the context in mind. You could read it this way with this thought. Who's, uh, but Christ was faithful as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope of the hope of what? Of fulfilling the heavenly calling. The heavenly calling being then the sharing of the glory of God or the sharing of the future glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Just like he says back in, um, hmm, oh, I didn't mean to do this, but, um, and if I can find it, I'll, yes, Romans 5, 2. You don't need, you can turn there if you want to do it quick, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it for sake of time. He says, by whom also we have access by faith and to this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I've already spent considerable time in weeks past going over this idea of the hope of the glory of God and what it means to share or participate in the hope of the glory of God. And it all has to do with our participation and our faithfulness as members of the house of God and those that we, and, and walking obediently thereby, walking by faith. And so he says we will be members of that house, Christ's house, if we hold fast our confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And the end of what? Well, all the way to the end of our lives. Never quit. Never give up holding to that faith that God is going to fulfill his promise to us just exactly as he said he would do. And that fulfillment, that promise would be carried out in the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming glory. The glory that will be manifested to this earth when he comes and sits on that throne and puts down every enemy, every vile thing that stands against Christ today will be removed and put down. And he will then usher in that age of peace and righteousness. Or maybe I should have said it the other way around because first will come righteousness and then will come peace. And we will be able to participate in that. We will be able then to have a share in that which he has promised to give us. Now we made, uh, I think, a clear distinction a few weeks ago back in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul made between the ages of the ages which he gives to us by his grace to those who have trusted Christ, to those who are in Christ. But yet Paul makes a very distinct difference between he calls the age to come in the very same book, in the book of Ephesians, he makes a distinction between those two. The age to come, which is following this one, 
and then the ages of the ages. So there is something in the ages of the ages out beyond the age following this one in which God will manifest his grace in us and show forth us as it were a trophy of his grace to all of creation. But yet there is something facing us and standing before us that's going to come before that. And that's the age to come. That's the age following this one before that one arrives. And all of these things we see in the New Testament that the church today just wants to do. I just brought up my own name. I call this leapfrog Christianity. They just want to jump right over the millennium and land all these promises and all these conditions and everything out there in eternity. Consequently, when they do that, then you've got all these conditional promises that they're applying to eternal salvation. And then everybody gets all uptight because they can't know for sure if they're really saved. And they begin to wonder about it. And they begin to doubt it. And then they lose their assurance. And the whole point that I was trying to bring out a couple weeks ago was simply to let's, let's come back, let's regain the idea of assurance. Let us know that our position with Christ in eternity is secure and sure. He's told us there, in the ages to come, we will be trophies of his to manifest to all creation of all that Christ has done for us. But on the other hand, let's don't miss the point that God has called us to something very specific that's going to occur in the next age when this one comes to a conclusion. And I believe with, along with a lot of others that we're very, very near the end of this one. And the next one is about to commence. That is to say... The rapture of the church is very, very near. And that will bring to a conclusion this age, and a new one will begin to commence with the coming of Christ and the establishment of his rule over the earth. And so all of this stuff is bound up. That's a good theological word, isn't it, stuff? All of these things are bound up in the idea of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly. He calls it in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the assembly of the firstborn ones written in heaven. Well, we're going to come to that at a later time. But let me just say to you today that you need to identify yourself with the Lord's church. And I don't mean necessarily strictly by having your name on a church roll somewhere. But the number one way in which you do that is to be baptized. When you are baptized you are identifying yourself with his ecclesia and all that he promised and gave us in the scriptures regarding that ecclesia. Now, is there a sense of commitment to a local church? You better believe it. And we're going to come to that in our continued study here in the New Testament regarding the New Testament church and the commitment that we need to have to a local assembly of believers, because the word is used many, matter of fact, most of the time in the New Testament, the word church is used just that way. So if you're here this morning and you're not a part of a New Testament assembly, then I'd like to simply invite you to come. And if you feel like this is the place that the Lord would want you to identify with and be a member of and manifest his witness in this community, and we'd like you to come this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just 
want to thank you for the privilege of serving you. We want to thank you for the privilege of being a, a, a part of the body of Christ, the church. And as we study these things, Lord, I pray that you will make it clearer uh, day by day and week by week uh, as we study these things, the importance of the church and, and the nature, what makes up the body of Christ. And as we sing this uh, hymn and, and give an invitation, we just pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak to hearts this morning and that each one of us would do what you want us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hymn number 342, Just As I Am Without One Plea. The standards we sing. so much for the Bob and uh, trust that you'll have a, a wonderful Lord's Day today.